Good morning, Tri-Village. It is such a joy to be able to come and to worship with you and to open God's Word and to see how God's Word is living and active and for our lives today. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online or watching us later. Uh, we are in the third week of our Matthew series. Uh, but before I begin, I want to just highlight one more thing that I got to experience yesterday. I know that I have some extra time because Eric has already said you guys are used to going like 90 minutes, right? Okay, uh, so yesterday was my first time being at CareFest and getting to experience that, and so uh, Joel had given me a list of places to be able to go visit so I could get the experience of all the partners that we are ministering alongside in our community. Uh, so I visited all these different sites, met different leaders, um, local partners, and, and got to minister alongside of many of you uh, across to our area. And then I was joining the student ministry for a lunch afterwards, and so we're having lunch, and I mean... These kids are coming back dirty, covered in mulch and all this type of stuff, and they're tired. But I'm sitting next to some uh, junior and senior girls, and they start talking, and they find out that there was a site that we didn't have enough volunteers to make it to during the day. And so amongst them, they start talking, they start coordinating, and they start planning CareFest 2.0 to go after lunch and spend the rest of their afternoon serving to complete this CareFest site that we didn't have volunteers for. That spoke so much to my heart. One, many of these students have been raised with CareFest, and so I'm watching these uh, 14, 15, 16-year-olds say that they've been a part of CareFest for over 10 years already. And in this moment, God has worked so mightily in their hearts and seen the impact that they're having in the community, they said, we want to lead in this way. So not only do we get to have an impact as we were the hands and feet, but God is doing something in our own hearts and lives that I don't want us to forget and doing something in our next generation that I want us to see that we may not always see each week. So that was just something that I wanted to encourage you with as we begin. But now let's turn to the text. Let's go and look at what Matthew chapter 2 has for us. Eric and I have been joking about this text uh, for a couple weeks debating on who gets to preach it and when, and, and uh, it's not the most joyous text that we like to roll up to as pastors. But as we look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, we look at the flight of Jesus and the return to Nazareth. So this whole history of his infancy and young childhood. I remember reading uh, this passage, this was a part of the Christmas story for my family uh, every year. So we go to my grandparents' house, and, and uh, we get ready for Christmas with all my cousins. And my grandfather, who is a pastor as well, uh, would like to read the story, but my grandmother always made it a production. So each year, she would assign roles, she would design costumes, and she would have a run-through for all the grandchildren to act out the Christmas story. That was what I did every year. So I know this story very well. It was a big part of my life. I mean, I had my grandmother made me act in the Christmas story all the way up until I was 16 years old. Uh, but even so, I don't think I fully understood the beauty of this gospel or understood how Matthew writes until I began to look at his words. Not just... The, the words on the page, but the placement of these words in the way that he tells this Christmas story. 
For us, I want us to see it reveals Matthew's convictions about who Jesus is. Remember, Matthew is writing this gospel for the Jewish people, and he seeks to show them how Jesus furthers the story of Israel. So as we read Matthew today, what I want us to look at as we look at Jesus or the king's history, I want us to be thinking about three questions that we ask the text. First, how does this echo Israel's story? Second, how does Jesus fulfill Israel's story? And third, how does it move the story of Israel forward? These three questions will help us clue into what Matthew is trying to get us to understand. This passage alone in all of Matthew includes so many citations of the Old Testament where Matthew seemingly freezes the story and the action to help explain its significance within the nation of Israel. This is so significant to Matthew that there are 42 Old Testament citations all throughout the book of Matthew. This is compared to only 19 in Mark and Luke and 14 in John. So you see the importance that Matthew is placing on understanding the Old Testament as he shares the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew views each step in Jesus' story as the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. And we've seen this five times in these last two chapters. Right? We began um, last week in Isaiah 714 that we saw in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. He cites Micah 5:2 in Matthew 2, verse 6. Today we'll see him cite Hosea 11:1 1 in Matthew 2:15. We'll see him cite Jeremiah 31, 15 and Matthew 2, 8 and an unknown text in Matthew 2, 23. So why does Matthew have this recurring appeal to Scripture? First, I want us to understand that it was an imperative that Matthew argue the casing for Christ in terms of the scriptural authority available and compelling to him, which was the Old Testament. The law and the prophets spoke of the coming Messiah. And so it's with Scripture that authoritatively clarifies who Jesus is. So Matthew turns to it to explain the biblical importance of the events that he is telling. Second, these Scriptures brought great resonance to the reader. The early church was not ignorant of the Old Testament as some people believe. As new believers entered the church, there was a robust reading and learning and understanding of the Old Testament as a part and alongside the teachings of Jesus. And so in these citations that Matthew marks, they evoke for the readers many associated connections that they already had read and known throughout the Old Testament. Third, the appeal to Scripture demonstrates the things that Jesus did and that happened in him were predetermined components of an age-long, age-old design of God. This conviction reassures us as readers of God's ultimate control over every event, both then and now. 
So as we look at this, we see Matthew's focus on the Old Testament. As we look, though, we're going to see three different prophecies fulfilled in our portion of Scripture in Matthew 2 today. And we need to understand just a little bit. So I'm going to go on a slightly academic sidebar just for a second to help us understand why Matthew includes prophecy and how do we look at prophecy. Because that can be kind of uh, hard to understand. Matthew's citations of the Old Testament teach us something about how biblical prophecy is supposed to be understood. When I say the word prophecy, right, many people first think of a specific prophecy with a clear prediction of some future event. And sometimes that's exactly it. We saw that last week as Eric shared with us uh, the prophecy of Jesus being born in Judea and Bethlehem. That is a direct, clear, concise prophecy with a direct reference in Micah 5.2. Another type of prophecy, though, is more general in nature. A fulfillment without a direct quotation typically signifies that a thought or a theme were pervasive all throughout the Old Testament. This is evident as the author of Hebrews argues that the entire sacrificial system pointed forward to Jesus' death for sin and is fulfilled by him in the atonement. D.A. Carson writes it in this way. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we learn how the law anticipated the gospel, how the Levitical priesthood pointed to a new high priest who would effectively stand between God and humanity and never need replacing, how the ancient kingdom of David served as a model for a type of kingdom of God, and how certain covenants had built an obsolence that led believers to look forward to the dawning of the promised new covenant and much more. So it's important for us to understand these general types of prophecies because many of them link the Old and the New Testament. Even though they may be general in nature, they are no less significant than the specific predictions. And as we journey through Matthew in the coming weeks, we will see that many of the Old Testament citations in Matthew must be understood in the broader context, as with the case that we'll see today with our three prophecies. So now that I've got that out of the way, right, you still tracking with me? I want us to understand our theme for today. Our theme for today is for us to see through these prophecies that King Jesus' history is the good, the new and greater fulfillment of Israel's history. Right? King Jesus' history is the new and greater fulfillment of Israel's history. So we're going to walk through the text here in these three segments, see three prophecies, and we'll see three things that Jesus is. Jesus is a new and better exodus. Jesus is a new and better covenant. And Jesus is a new and better Savior. New and better exodus, new and better covenant, new and better Savior. Let's look first at the new and better exodus. We see this in verses 13 through 15. This is Jesus' exodus, uh, I mean, um, Moses being, Moses, Joseph being warned in a dream that Herod is after Jesus, seeking to kill him, and so he flees to Egypt. We get this warning, he flees right away. I look at this story and I'm like, wow, I do not want to be Joseph and Mary. Right? I have four children, 
And I remember our Christmas journey, every Christmas after we had a newborn. So uh, I remember our first one with my daughter Bryn, our second one, all that kind of stuff. We had a, a Christmas journey where we traveled from Michigan, where we were living and pastoring, to Pennsylvania, where my, my wife's family is from. Roughly a nine and a half, ten hour trip. But those of you that have had newborns know that is a journey, right? One, trying to keep the newborn happy, time out the, the driving sequence to get them to sleep as much as I can, trying to figure out when you're going to make stops when they get hungry. And so that nine to 10 hour normal drive turns into 12, 14, 16 hours. Yeah, some for some longer. And I remember even in our, our own times, because it's at Christmas and because we're in the north, for some reason, there was always some type of weather. And I don't know how many times over the course of having four children and having four infants in this traveling, multiple times we got caught in snowstorms, we're traveling through freezing rain, we have to go through some mountains. It is arduous. And so when I look at this passage and I first read this script and see this story and see that Joseph is warned in a dream to flee with an infant Jesus, I'm like, whoo, more power to you. Like, like, really, is Herod really going to come after us? Like, do we have to travel now? Like, uh, can we wait till like, a little bit older? No. We see this take place. The angel warns Joseph in a dream because Herod is dying to come, so he flees to Egypt. What we know, though, about this passage of Scripture and what we know about Herod's character is that this mimics what he's done his entire rule. Herod has always been ruthless, always protecting his, his, his right to the throne. Even he, in later years, became even more terrifying and unnerved. In fact, he murdered his favorite wife and had her two sons strangled as a last to keep them from being on the throne. And as a last act, he even killed his son Antipater because his son was saying, I'm going to be the next king. Herod's anger, his fury, his wrath were well known and would have unnerved Joseph. And even in the midst of this, though, the slaughter of these young children might even look as a minor offense for all the things that he did, all the sins and murder that he committed. So Joseph flees with Jesus. But why Egypt? Right? Why, why choose Egypt? Well, actually, Egypt was a very natural place for the family to escape. It actually really wasn't very far away. The border was approximately 70 miles from Bethlehem. Egypt was also a well-ordered Roman colony, well beyond Herod's jurisdiction, and continued to have a large Jewish population that was roughly one million strong. Joseph would have had no trouble finding relatives or friends that were living in Egypt and securing work there during their flight. But we see it's not just about the story here. It's not just about Jesus going to Egypt. It is meant to fulfill a prophecy. And so Matthew cites us here a prophecy of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him. 
and out of Egypt I called my son. At first glance, this prophecy seems straightforward, right? He called Jesus out of Egypt. He's showing God his love. We see God's faithfulness. This seems all about who God is. But if we look through it with the lens of knowing its reflection and a foretelling of Israel's history, we begin to see a broader context. Egypt becomes a house of refuge for Israel. It was Egypt that Jacob and his family found refuge in during the famine in Genesis 42. When King Solomon sought to put Jeroboam to death, Jeroboam fled to Egypt in 1 Kings 11. When the citizens of Judah killed the governor who Nebuchadnezzar had placed over them, they forced Jeremiah to flee with them to Egypt in Jeremiah 41. So over and over again, we have seen Egypt throughout Israel's history be a place of refuge when times are hard. We also know significantly that Israel was delivered from bondage by God out of Egypt and in to the Exodus. And so the early Jewish readers would have seen this and known of this. This was regularly seen in rabbinic literature as a type of salvation and foretelling of a messianic age to come. So the parallel we see here, this new Exodus motif that is presented here in Matthew is a reminder, as, as Hosea writes, of God calling Israel out of Egypt into this Exodus is seen in a broader light as the Messiah himself, Jesus, being called out of Egypt. This is the first time we're seeing Matthew equate the nation of Israel with the person of Jesus. Israel, God's chosen son by adoption. And Jesus, God's only son. In both cases, they come out of Egypt. But I want us to see the significance of this fulfillment. Hosea's passage is not only deliverance of people from Egypt, but of God's faithfulness to them, both past and present. God's faithfulness and love to the nation of Israel, though they were the disobedient son. And by contrast, Jesus is the beloved son whom the Father will see will say in chapter 3, in whom he is well pleased. So how does this echo Israel's story? We see that Jesus going to Egypt parallels the Exodus story. It fulfills the prophecy of Jesus being called out of Egypt. But it points towards that Jesus is the beloved son rather than the disobedient son. The second thing we're going to see here in the second portion of our scripture is a new and better covenant. Let's look at verses 16 through 18. And this passage of Scripture is the entire plot for Herod to murder the children in Bethlehem. It's a very brief account. And apart from the note that Herod determined the age span for the slaughter from the Magi, Matthew does not elaborate on many of the details. 
the wise men in their visit with Herod and trying to understand and learn more of him as we learned last week, must have told Herod when the star appeared before their arrival in Jerusalem. And so Herod decides to kill all male children under the age of two to ensure that his murder, these murders would include the unidentified young usurper to his throne. And even though scholars believe that because Bethlehem and the surrounding area was sparsely populated and that roughly only 20 young boys may have been killed during this massacre, it's no less impactful, especially to the mothers of these little ones. But in the way Matthew writes, we see him share this story and then tie it directly once again to an Old Testament scripture. He ties it directly to Jeremiah 31.15. The prophecy goes like this. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. If we check Jeremiah, maybe you've read it before, we will find that the tears of this verse are for those being carried off during the exile period. This statement referred initially to the weeping of the nation as a result of the death of the children at the time of the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. You see, Ramah was roughly six miles north of, Bethlehem, of Jerusalem, and was the place the departing captives had to walk through on their way to the land of the northern invaders. Rachel's tomb was near Bethlehem, and Rachel was considered to be the mother of the nation of Israel. And so this picture is a vibrant picture to the nation of Israel of all the pain and suffering that Israel's gone through at the hands of Gentiles. The text in Jeremiah 31 is, is even, not even a prediction. It doesn't even use the future sense, but parallels the mothers near Ramah bemoaning the loss of their children and what is taking place in the day of Jesus. This isn't just a mere coincidence that Matthew happens upon, but it is a divine connection. Rama evoking memories of Rachel's tomb and the departure of her children centuries ago makes this choice of the Old Testament quotation from Matthew such more appropriate for the Jewish people of that day. Another thing we see, though, is that in this prophecy, the tears are for the nation of Israel and not specifically for the Holy Family. So it's not specifically that they're not crying for Jesus going to exile, but for those who remain and were slaughtered. And so this might give us a reason to understand why we get this, this uh, um, mourning passage, but I don't think it gives us clarity of understanding the fullness of Jeremiah's prophecy. So we have to ask, what is Matthew doing here? What's he thinking? What is he trying to get us to understand? 
in this somewhat related but somewhat unrelated passage from Jeremiah 31. If you take the time, and I would encourage you this week to read uh, Jeremiah 31, to see the fullness of what Jeremiah is talking about, we're going to see some connections. I think the first connection we see is that of hope. If you read the fullness of Jeremiah 31, that is the whole context that Jeremiah is writing. They're looking back at what they've walked through, but looking forward to the hope that they have as a nation, knowing that they follow a faithful and loving God. At the beginning of Jeremiah 31, God says he will continue to be the God of the exiled people in verse 1. He says that those who are not killed by the Babylonians will experience his his favor in verse 2. He says that his love is an everlasting love, verse 3, and that it will build his people up again in verse 4. In verses 4, 5, 7, 12, 13, over and over again, he speaks of Israel's future joy. In verse 8, he speaks to regathering his people from all the lands of the north and from every end of the earth. Then after Rachel weeps in verse 15, there's a promise that God will bring his people back to their own land in verse 17. In fact, the only reason for the reference to Rachel's weeping of her children is for those who are taken to exile. He's actually commanding them in verse 16 to restrain from weeping. I know this is sad, but you don't have to be sad for long because there is hope. Jeremiah in the exile period is is telling Israel not to look back in sorrow, but to look forward in the hope that we have. There is hope for the exiles in Babylon because they will return to their own land, and there is hope for Israel because the Messiah escaped Herod's wrath and will return from Egypt. But I think we take this a step further. I believe there's even more than just a generalization of hope for the future for Israel. We know that Jesus was the future hope of Israel. We know that Jesus is the hope for our own lives. But I think it even speaks more significantly that the exile marked the beginning of the final section of the genealogy that we read two weeks ago in Matthew chapter 1. And that final section ends with the Messiah's coming. God saves this child, Jesus, from the slaughter so that he might reverse the fortunes of God's people, turning sorrow into joy and ushering in a new covenant. You see, if we read all the way to the end of Jeremiah 31, the promised hope, where we get the hope from, is the promised new covenant that he will make with Israel. D.A. Carson says it this way, Matthew has already made the exile a turning point in his thought in chapter 1. For at that time, the Davidic line was dethroned. The tears of the exiles are now being fulfilled. The tears begun in Jeremiah's day are now climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers in Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has come. The true exile is over, and the true Son of God has arrived and will now introduce the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. 
Read with me in Jeremiah 31, starting verse 31. See this new covenant that Jesus is. Verse 31 says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer they will teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the very least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Amen. And so we see very clearly here in Jeremiah, the new covenant is promised. We're promised a Savior that's not only going to rescue his people, but one that rescues us from our sin, our deepest need in everything. So we see clearly Jesus is the new covenant. And I believe that this passage in Matthew that he's referencing is drawing on the context, helping Israel clue in to something that's very familiar to their hearts, but then pointing to the fulfillment of Jesus as the new covenant. Jesus speaks this way in Luke 22. When he's in the upper room with his disciples, he says this, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Again, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he's died as a ransom to set them free from their sins committed under the first covenant. Wow. When I first was reading through this, and I've read that text over and over again. It's very easy to pass over this song or, or, the, or this lament in Rama. But if we understand its connection to the Old Testament, we see the greater fulfillment of Jesus as the new covenant. So we see that this Jeremiah 31 parallels the exile story for us. We see that Jesus is the future hope of Israel. But even greater, that Jesus establishes a new covenant through his death and resurrection. One more prophecy. We look at the third one in Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, as Jesus returns to Nazareth. I want us to see a new and better Savior. So in this passage, we see Matthew tell the story of Jesus' return. Herod dies, right? Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. Joseph and his family are set to return. Then the angel tells Joseph to return to Israel. And so Joseph begins his journey home, but along the way, hears who the next ruler is and is worried. 
And so once again, as we've seen Joseph move throughout this whole birth narrative, an angel warns Joseph not to go back to Bethlehem, but Nazareth of Galilee. That's how we get the hometown of Jesus, right? Jesus is known as from Nazareth. I don't know about you. I don't know where you grew up or where you've been. Some of you, maybe you've lived here your entire lives. Do you have anybody who's lived here their entire lives? Great. That's not me. People always ask, like, uh, Brent, where are you from? And Eric jokingly says, like, yeah, he's a Buckeye fan. Yes, I am. I've grown up a good portion of my life in Ohio, but I have lived so many different places. And so when people try to, try to talk with me and try to figure out where are you from and try to get a sense of what culture I grew up in, what's my hometown, that is a tough question for me to answer. In fact, uh, I was born in Toccoa, Georgia, a small town in northeast corner of Georgia. I grew up for the early part of my life in Bellevue, Ohio, about 20 minutes directly south of Cedar Point. I spent my adolescence in Washington, D.C. I spent much of my middle school and high school years in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, then graduated from the small country town in Willard, Ohio. Nobody knows what that is. Don't worry. There's like one or two stoplights. So my life, my growing up, has been eclectic. It's hard for me to have a sense of a hometown, even though my parents still live in Willard, Ohio, I don't necessarily call that my hometown. And so a lot of that, as you hear me talk about, you'll hear maybe where I've been as an adult. I've spent years living in Michigan and Ohio and now Chicago. And so it's really hard for me to get a feel of, of, of my hometown. And so I think in the same way we look at Jesus and we see all the places that he's been, and we wonder, okay, well, how does it come up that we, we call him Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, wasn't he born in Bethlehem? Like, don't we well, don't want to go back there like Jesus of Bethlehem? That, that really fits better. But I want us to see what Matthew is pointing out here through this story and through this general prophecy that he shares with us. Joseph thought that he was going to return to Bethlehem and assumed that he would take Jesus there as a descendant of David and, and Israel's future king and that he should be raised in the town of David in that Davidic line. But as he approached, he had doubts. Herod's surviving son, Archelaus, was on the throne and was known to be ruthless. He actually was a little bit crazy. And so he realized very quickly it would not be safe for Jesus to be in Bethlehem. And so the angel guides him and has him withdraw to Galilee, where he'd be safer. This is then where Matthew, once again, inserts the citation in a reference back to the Old Testament, but it's less clear. He introduces this reference to the Old Testament and says, so what would be fulfilled was said through the prophets, he would be called a Nazarene. The struggle here, though, this is one of those times where we see a general prophecy without a specific fulfillment. So how do we handle this? I want to remind you about what I said at the very beginning during my little academic sidebar. 
A fulfillment without a quotation typically signifies that this thought pervaded all of the Old Testament scriptures. So as we see here, Matthew doesn't include a verse-by-verse reference, but talks about the prophets, plural, saying this as a general understanding. He's referring to a general teaching of Scripture that might really come out to say, this was to fulfill the teachings of the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. The problem still remains, though, that in the Old Testament, there is no such reference to a Nazarene. So a better explanation is probably to the fact that Nazareth was a despised place. This town was scorned by the Jewish urban elite as an unimportant, partly Gentile, backwater town that was probably referred to disparagingly with crude names. It would have had an immediate poor connotation to any Jew of the day. What Matthew seems to be saying is that the prophet predicted the Messiah would be despised, a victim of slurs, and he would not be known as Jesus of Bethlehem with all the honorable Davidic overtones, but he would be born in Bethlehem and referred to Jesus the Nazarene. We see this come out in John chapter 1 as Nathanael responds to Philip that he and Andrew and Peter had found the Messiah. Philip comes excitingly, says, we found the one that Moses has wrote about in the law and whom all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What's Nathanael's reply to this amazing news? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? This shows us immediately the connotation of the town. It was not highly sought after. It was not a place of importance. It was not a place where Israel's king is supposed to come from. So Matthew was right to remind his readers that the prophets foretold that the Messiah would not be honored by his people, but would be despised. Isaiah 53 comes to mind when we see this. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one whom people hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. This context, as I said, is a general one, and so it's seen pervasively throughout Scripture. You can go back and read other texts in Psalm chapter 22, verses 6 through 18. Psalm 69, verse 9 and 19 through 21, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Daniel 9, all speak to the Messiah, his humble beginnings, being despised and rejected. I want us to see that Matthew is telling us that Jesus came as a new and better Savior. He was humble, despised, rejected. Jesus in his ministry worked through the unexpected. His followers include fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, unlearned men, none of the religious elite, 
none of the rulers of the day, none of those of prominence. Jesus came as a new and better Savior because he came to establish a kingdom that had no partiality. James 2 says it this way, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, Christ came to show no favoritism. It doesn't matter who we are, what status we have, what ethnic background we have, what socioeconomic background we have, That does not matter to Jesus. He came as a new and better Savior, humble, despised, and rejected, that we might experience the fullness of who he is. You see, throughout history, there have been many people named Jesus. In the Old Testament period, more than one person had been given the name Jesus or Joshua, which is the Hebrew or Greek equivalent of the name Jesus. But no matter what they did, they could never begin to compare to the Jesus we see here in Matthew. D.A. Carson says it this way, David's son would emerge from humble obscurity and low state. Jesus is King Messiah, Son of God, Son of David, but he was a branch from a royal line hacked down to a stump and reared in surroundings guaranteed to win him scorn. Jesus the Messiah, Matthew is telling us, did not introduce his kingdom with outward show or present himself with a pomp of earthly royalty. In accordance with prophecy, he came as the despised servant of of the Lord. So Matthew is showing that this prophecy of who Jesus is parallels Israel's story. Israel, all throughout its history, was despised and rejected as a people. Jesus came to fulfill Israel's story. He was humble, despised, and rejected as the Savior. But he came as the fulfillment of a new and better Savior. Jesus is the fulfillment of salvation history for Israel and for us. What was planned and foretold all throughout the Old Testament comes to fruition in the New Testament in the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is the new and better exodus as the true son the new and better covenant as the true king, and the new and better savior as the one who saves us from our sins. Amen? So as we read Matthew and we've spent these first three weeks in it, we know who Jesus is. Today we learned how his history was foretold, how he came to be the new and better savior. And so the question I want to ask us that we need to ask ourselves is in light of knowing who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how he is the new and better Savior, how does this move our story forward? How does what we know change our understanding about who we are and what we need? Are we allowing Jesus 
as the new and better Savior to impact our lives, to make us new as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that from the beginning of time you've established the things that you want to do, that you are intimately involved in every event from beginning to end. Matthew helps us see the fullness of your plan even in the early part of the story of Israel's history. Lord, help us to understand we took a deep dive into who you are and your fulfillment of everything. Lord, may we remind as we walk through Matthew that you came as the new and better Savior to save us from our sins as God with us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.